are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Um, we were scheduled, I'm just going to hold this, we were scheduled this morning to uh, be finishing out our series uh, that we've been in for the past four weeks called It's Time, where we have uh, really been uh, calling ourselves to, to maturity, um, but as I wrestled through the text that we had uh, scheduled to, we were scheduled to be in this morning, um, I just felt steered by the Holy Spirit to go a different direction. Um, and so this morning we find ourselves in Psalm chapter 7. Um, I, I think as, um, as many of you are probably aware of, uh, last week a grand jury in Kentucky ruled in the case involving uh, the police officers who took the life of, uh, of Breonna Taylor, a young black woman. Uh, shot and killed in her own house in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And of the three officers under, under investigation, uh, two received uh, no charges. Uh, the third received a Class D felony charge for wanton endangerment, uh, which essentially means that he was reckless with his firearm and some of the bullets that were released from his gun ended up traveling and, uh, and hitting a nearby apartment. Um, however, in, in the jury's uh, decision, no one was found guilty of a crime uh, for discharging bullets that hit and struck Miss Taylor and, uh, and killed her. And it's, it's for this fact that many are understandably upset. Now, admittedly, this case has some perplexing aspects about it. Uh, the Attorney General of Kentucky um, explained several things in his uh, statement after the decision. And one thing he explained was that although the officers obtained a no-knock warrant, uh, they claimed to have announced their presence upon entering into the apartment. This claim was validated by one eyewitnesses, although one eyewitness, although others say they did not hear anything. And Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, claims that he did not hear the announcement of the police. And so when they forcibly entered into his home, he interpreted this moment as a home invasion and as a licensed gun carrier grabbed his firearm and shot, hitting a policeman. And when this happened, the police then returned fire repeatedly. And these bullets fired from the officer's pistols fatally struck Breonna Taylor, who was in an adjacent bedroom. Now, regardless, regardless of how you might interpret the facts of this case or how you may feel about whether or not Ms. Taylor is implicated in any way or I think we can all agree that the way in which Breonna Taylor died was incredibly tragic. And I think we can agree that it doesn't seem right that a young woman not implicated in the case that the officers were confronting has died in her own bedroom by governing authorities. Some of you are probably sitting here in this moment and you're wondering why in the world I would venture into this topic. Andy, why go here? This is so uh, potentially polarizing and potentially political. Like, why kick the hornet's nest? Carl Bart once said that as pastors, you have to preach with the Bible in one hand and with the newspaper in the other. And I believe this is one of those moments that necessitates a pastoral word. Um, and so that's why we're here this morning. I'm a young woman made in the image of God is dead. And death 
her death has struck a chord with, with many. The city of Louisville right now, which I lived in for a couple of years, I have many friends that live in Louisville, it's tense with unrest. Two police officers in retaliation were shot in response to the grand jury's verdict. And I think in light of our own city's history, I believe many of our neighbors are feeling the weight of this as well. It doesn't seem fair that, that no one is accountable for Breonna Taylor's death. This, this, seems, this seems like to many a miscarriage of justice. And I've seen many, particularly many of my black brothers and sisters in Christ, say something to the effect of, to be honest with you, I'm not surprised by the grand jury's decision. I'm just discouraged by it. Some have even admitted that at this point they feel numb to what seems like a repeated, unwarranted death of many black individuals at the hands of law enforcement. And so when we, as a church, who whose vision statement states that we desire to be a diverse family of disciples, when, when we have brothers and sisters who are telling us that they feel this way, we're called to enter into their pain with them. We're called to feel with them, to grieve with them. As the Apostle Paul put it, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And so this morning, this morning I want us through God's word, to consider the question, what do we do when the world seems upside down? When the scales of injustice seem broken? When right seems like it's losing to wrong? Because that is the stated feeling of many of our brothers and sisters. One thing I love about the word of God is that it's always timely. It's always on time. It always has a message for our moment. And in Psalm chapter 7, what you have is you have a situation in which the psalmist, uh, David, has been falsely accused of treason against the king and conspiracy against the king. And, and so he's being slandered, and his life is literally in critical danger. The king wanted David dead. He viewed David as a threat. And so here is a man in Psalm 7 under attack forced to hide, and he's distraught, and he's confused. And so what this psalm is dealing with is a man grieving what he feels like is injustice. This is David dealing with the sense that the world is not fair. And in his distress and in his grief, he writes a song of, of imprecation and lament to God. And these are divinely inspired words, words inspired by the, by the very Holy Spirit of God to give the people of God, to give us a language of lament when life is unfair, when we feel unjustly treated, when we experience prejudice, when evil seems to be winning the day, when we are frustrated and fearful and fatigued. The songbook of God gives us a language to speak. It gives us words to pray. And I, and I realize, I realize that in this room this morning, there are some of us who may not experience these feelings as it relates to this case. Again, we're pursuing empathy and compassion this morning. But also, we, we would be naive not to recognize that, 
That as followers of Jesus in a broken world, there will come a time in your life and in my life when we are the one who feels like a victim of injustice. When we are the one who feels like life is not fair, that the world is broken, that the scales don't work. And when that time comes, this psalm will be an anchor for your soul. And so we'll notice four truths this morning that tether our faith when we find ourselves in a situation like David's, when life has dealt a hand of injustice. Truth number one, the Lord is a real hope. The Lord is a real hope. In the midst of of the mess that's going on in our nation currently, a a high school friend who I I don't know if he's a, a follower of Jesus or not, he wrote this on Facebook. He said, weeks like this remind me why people run to God. We're jealous, selfish, foolish, irrational. He says, conversely, weeks like this make me question God's existence. That's a really honest response to evil, isn't it? We look around at so much evil in the world, so much brokenness in the world, and and we find ourselves either saying out loud or maybe thinking in our minds, God, where are you? That comment really got me thinking and wrestling with my own faith. How, how do I make sense of belief in a good God who's in control when there's so much evil and, and so much injustice and senseless violence and suffering? Have you ever wrestled with that question before? It's really not a new question. It's been asked for literally millennia. But nonetheless, it's a question for us to consider. Where is God in, in, a, in a broken world with injustice and evil? And the more you press into that question, the more you may realize that on this side of heaven, you're likely never going to be able to completely make sense of the suffering in our world or find a fully satisfying answer to why God allows injustices to take place. But here's something else you may realize. The very fact that deep in your bones you find yourself pushing back against evil, that actually is evidence itself that a good God exists. Because our outcry against injustice testifies of being made in the image of a just God. We're all all laced with this innate sense of morality. Deep deep within us we have this fundamental belief in, in right and in wrong. And if, if you sit here this morning wrestling with God's existence or, or perhaps wrestling with the goodness of God, especially maybe due to the problem of evil, I want you to consider the paradox. For evil to exist, so must objective morality. But how could there be good and evil without a standard by which to measure those things? In other words, if God doesn't exist, morality at its best is construed. It's completely relative. And we could never ultimately say that anything is right and anything is wrong. Without without God, good is simply an opinion. Bad is only subjective. But we know better, don't we? We know that there's right and we know that there's wrong. We know that it is wrong when a, a life is taken, we, we know that injustice towards certain individuals and certain groups is unfair. And we know it because morality exists. And, and morality exists, church, because God exists. And in moments like the one that David was facing, moments like maybe 
we are facing, like our nation is facing, here's what we need to know. Hope. Hope is found in the existence of God. God is a real hope for humanity. We, not, we may not be able to parse out all of the meanings of, of life's events, but we, we turn to God nonetheless because where else are we going to go? It, it makes me think of John chapter 6. Do you remember this occasion in the Gospel of John where Jesus has just really said some, some really offensive things? He, he's looked at a crowd who he multiplied bread and fishes earlier and, and fed their bellies and they experienced this miracle. And, and now it's later in the day and they come looking for Jesus and he looks at this big crowd and he says, you're not coming to me because you believe in me. You're coming to me because your bellies were fed. And he says, you need, here's, here's the true bread from heaven. I'm the true bread from heaven. You need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. And they look at Jesus and they go, you're crazy. And the crowd leaves. They walk away from Jesus. And then he looks at his disciples and he says to his disciples, are you going to leave too? And there's this incredibly honest response from the Apostle Peter, who's probably speaking for all the disciples. He looks at Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, where else would we go? I just find that such an incredibly honest moment. The, the disciples were probably no less scandalized than everyone else. That's a weird thing for Jesus to say. It's something that they didn't completely grasp or understand yet. They would, they would come to understand that later. But at this point in time, it's some weird language from Jesus. And yet, nonetheless, Peter says, Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And the same is true for us. In, in our tough times, where else would we go? There's no hope in a world in which a good God doesn't exist. And so with all of the confusion and anguish and anger and fear, David cries out to God. And he shows us through this psalm, he models for us that we can go to God with all of our emotions and we can cry out to him and lay our souls bare before the Lord. You know, growing up, I wasn't really, uh, I was maybe told this, it wasn't modeled for me that I could actually do this. And somewhere along the way, a good friend of mine named Philip Wood introduced me to a guy by the name of Dave Busby. Maybe you've heard of Dave Busby. He's since passed. He was an evangelist and a, and a youth speaker. And, and Busby was a man who lived with incredible challenges. He, he suffered from, uh, from uh, a disease, and, and he, he didn't have full lung capacity. And so he would literally get up to, to, to preach, and it would exhaust him. He lived a hard life, but he was a man who walked closely with God. The way he talked about God was different. It was as if he knew God in a personal way, like he really knew him. You ever met anybody like that? And Busby would talk about how you can talk to the Lord the way a child would talk to her father. You think about a young child who unabashedly walks straight up to her daddy and sits in her daddy's lap and grabs her daddy by the face and looks her daddy in the eyes. And says what she wants to say. Busby says that's the way that we can talk to God. You can lay your soul bare before the Lord. He's a real hope for you today. Somebody needs to hear this. God is a real hope for you today. Truth number two. The Lord is a refuge and a shield. The Lord is a refuge and a shield. David cries out in verse one of this psalm and he says, Lord, my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me or they will, they will tear me like a lion. 
ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. He says in verse 10, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. My, my wife would tell you if she were here this morning that I am fascinated with survival shows. Like I, I, love, I love survival shows like Dual Survival or Alone or um, Bear Grylls. Um, I, finally, I find them incredibly uh, satisfying and fascinating. And, and, and some of my favorite episodes are always like when they're in the African bush and, and they're at risk of like encountering a lion or, or a leopard, some big cat that could literally tear them to pieces. And, and when I try to imagine myself being in a situation like that, the, the truth is if, if I saw a lion like in the wild, I would probably just hit the fetal position and pray it was over quick. Like be scared to death. And in this psalm, David compares his enemies to a lion. He says, God, you got to save me from my pursuers or they're going to tear me apart like a lion. David's enemy was nobody to play with. It's, it's very likely that he's referring to King Saul here. Saul was the king of Israel. He had resources. And if he wanted somebody to be gone, he could have them dealt with. You know what I'm saying? And so David is looking at his enemies and he's going, I've got to run and hide. I, I feel like a gazelle being stalked like a lion. Have you ever, you ever felt fearful like that before? Maybe from a situation, from a circumstance, maybe somebody had it out for you. You ever felt like you were under attack? It could, it could have been a spiritual attack. Jesus would tell us in the New Testament that our, we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. You know, I got to thinking about this picture of a lion in pursuit. And I realized that there was a time when I faced a real live lion face to face. A few years ago, I stood a mere 30 feet from a living, breathing lion at the zoo <laughs> where I was protected by a cage. And can I tell you that that cage made all of the difference in the world? And that's what David comes to realize in, in this psalm as he cries out to God. He says that God is his refuge, a place of hiding, a place of shelter where he can find safety from his enemies. He knows that when he hides himself in God, he doesn't have to live in perpetual fear of his enemies. In verse 10, he says that God is his shield. He can position himself behind God and be protected from the attacks of the enemy. I wonder this morning, when you, when you feel under attack and fearful, where is it that you run to hide? What is your shelter and shield that you look to as a refuge? We all have something. Can I tell you that oftentimes in my flesh, I run to distraction? For me, a shelter that I try to hide myself in is distraction, something to take my mind off of the anxiety, something to take my mind off of the fear, something to just distract me for a while. This might look like scrolling through social media for hours. It might look like another episode of Cobra Kai on Netflix. It might look like debating who's the GOAT, LeBron or MJ. It's LeBron, by the way. Sometimes I busy myself with work. I just throw myself into work. Ministry, by the way, is a great distraction from your fears because you can feel good about it. 
It's a great way to run from my problems. With all that's currently going on, with COVID and the racial tension in our country, I wonder if you find yourself anxious and looking for a refuge. You know, we can try to make politics our shelter. If we can just get so-and-so out of office, if we can just get so-and-so into office, if we can just get policy X in place, Listen, you should engage in the political process at whatever level you feel the Holy Spirit leading you to do so. As believers, we should seek the welfare of the city in which we live. We should seek the welfare of the nation in which we live. And this will likely mean that we get involved at some level in politics. We should pursue justice. But church, don't let American politics be your shelter. Don't seek that as a refuge. Maybe for some of us, money seems like a real good shelter. We say things like, if I just had a little more financial security, then I could finally relax and I could have peace. If only I could get that promotion. Listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting a promotion, but don't let more money be your refuge. Money can't be your shield. It can't give you peace. Maybe for many of us, we're going, man, I just like a sense of normalcy. We could just get back to normal. Man, then we'd have some peace. Hey, can I tell you something? Once we're past coronavirus, another one may come. We will not find our peace in normalcy, whatever that is. That's not the refuge that will protect us. The psalm calls us to hide ourselves in God, to look to God as our refuge. Now, what in the world does it mean to hide ourselves in God? I think it means that we trust in God's character and that we trust in his coming kingdom as our hope in this world. We hope in the promise that God is a just God. He is a good king who has promised to establish his rule both in our hearts and in our world. That he is present with us, that his kingdom is advancing even if we can't see it. Jesus said the kingdom is coming like leaven in some dough. It's coming like a mustard seed that's going to eventually sprout into a big tree. We may not see it initially, but we trust that it's coming, even if it's hidden from our eyes. One day it's going to come in its fullness. We trust that the king is working behind the scenes and enacting his plan, and that the king has promised to come soon and to consummate his kingdom. This is where we will find peace in a restless, anxious world. And this leads us to the third thing that we see in this psalm. God is not only a real hope, and he's not only a refuge. God is a righteous ruler. The Lord is a righteous ruler. Look at verse 6 with me. David says, rise up, Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake for me. You have ordained a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord. According to my righteousness and my integrity, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. These are really strong words from David. They may be striking to some of us. But here's what David is doing. In the midst of being falsely maligned, 
and attacked, David anchors his hope upon the reality that God is a just judge. He declares that God is a righteous God. And what God's righteousness means for us, church, is that he always does what is good, right, and perfect. He is good and he does good. In some church traditions, they'll do this call and response where they say God is good all the time. And they'll call back and all the time God is good. Maybe we can try that this morning. God is good all the time. Amen. We should maybe do that more. David, in his present agony, places his one, one of his feet firmly upon the foundation of God's goodness. He declares that the Lord is righteous, that he always does what is good. Ezra 8.22 says, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. The hand of God is for good for all who seek him. In the 1800s, there was, there was a man by the name of George Mueller. Maybe you've heard of him before. Mueller was the founder of, of five orphanages in Bristol, England. And these orphanages were, were funded and furnished, and they flourished by prayer. Mueller actually never asked for money. Through prayer, he asked God for money. Through prayer and pleading before the throne of God, the Lord funded these orphanages. He always provided. Mueller was known to be a man of incredible prayer and faith. And this was despite the fact that, that his life was filled with struggle and hardship. One of the hardest struggles of Mueller's life was when his wife was in a battle for her life with rheumatic fever. And in one of, one of Mueller's journal entries, he recounts, he says, the last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord God will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. And in response to that verse, Mueller says this. He says, I said to myself with regard to that latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, I am myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. Mueller, like David in this psalm, places his foot firmly upon the character and upon the promises of God, despite all of the pain of his present circumstance. He trusted that God is good and that God does good. He had faith to believe that God was good even in the death of his wife, that even this was ultimately somehow mysteriously for his good. And that's the kind of faith that we need, church. Faith in a God who is good, even when life seems unfair. We stand on the goodness of God. And then David 
takes his other foot and he places it upon the rock of God's sovereignty. So he puts one foot on the, on the rock of God's goodness and he puts the other foot on the rock of God's sovereignty. He recognizes that the Lord is a ruler and a judge to whom all are going to have to give account. David knows that he himself will have to stand before God. In, in verses 3 through 5, he, he pleads his own innocence. He says, vindicate me according to my righteousness. Now, David is not saying that he's never done anything wrong. He's not saying that he was an innocent or perfect man, but he was a man in covenant relationship with God. And so in in this scenario, in terms of what he's being accused of, of, of treason to the king, he's saying, God, if I've done something to deserve the punishment that the king is trying to inflict on me, Here I am. But David knows that he's been living his life before the Lord. He he knows that God sees his life. God knows his life. God knows his actions and can discern his motives. That's terrifying, by the way, isn't it? That God sees the real you, not the projected you, not the social media you, not the performative righteousness you. God sees the real you. But David knew he was hidden in covenant relationship with God. And it's on the basis of this relationship with Yahweh and on the promises of Yahweh that he cries out to God and says, vindicate me, God. He was guiltless primarily, in other words, based upon his faith, not his performance. And so David says, act on my behalf. And then he says, rise up, Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Wake up for me, God. David's calling on God to deal with his enemies. He's saying, Lord, do something. And church, I want to tell you this morning, if you are being mistreated, if you feel like you're not being dealt with fairly, if you are a a person who's experienced injustice, it's okay to say to God, God, would you deal with this on my behalf? Would you rise up and would you act for me? When we see the innocent being oppressed, we should cry out for God to take action. David says in verse 12, if anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. The the picture here that David draws is of God as a man who has readied himself for war. He's loaded his weapon and he's he's ready to fire. And, And what he's saying is the unrepentant sinner is in danger of God's righteous wrath. The oppressor and the exploiter is in the crosshairs of God's judgment. And though David doesn't know exactly when God will act against evil, he trusts that he will. He trusts that there's a day coming in which the Lord will manifest his justice. And church, can I tell you that the justice of God, dare I even say, the wrath of God is good news. We don't talk about this much. But the wrath of God is good news because it means that our God does not sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't turn a blind eye to evil. God deals with evil. He's committed to eradicating the world of all of its brokenness, of all of its sin. And David says, God, intervene. Manifest your justice. In verses 7 and 8, David pictures a future day in which everyone is gathered around the throne room, the judgment seat of God, where God renders verdicts upon people's lives. And David places his confidence in a God who sees all and knows all and who one day will even account. A day when sin will be dealt with. 
And so church, hear me. It may seem, it may seem like at present, we look around and we go, man, the enemy is winning. Feels like the enemy's winning the battle sometimes. I want you to know this. No injustice, no sin, no evil is going unnoticed. God sees it all. No wrongdoing will be unaddressed. All will be called to give an account before Almighty God. Acts 17, 31 says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. A day of reckoning is coming. And it's for this reason that David doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. This helps us, by the way, church. This makes us different. This makes us different than all of the world's responses to injustice and evil. The world's response to injustice, to personal wrongdoing, is vengeance. Our response is to entrust ourselves to a just judge. The Apostle Peter exhorts believers suffering for their faith. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator. Do good. Patiently wait. The day is coming. Paul tells believers in Rome, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul tells us to pursue peace, to live honorably, not to avenge ourselves, but to leave wrath to God. And we don't need to hear Paul saying, hey, just let people walk all over you and continue to get away with evil. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying here is that you can trust in a God who will righteously express his wrath toward evil in due time. God will repay all evil. And so we don't, we don't ignore evil. We can call it out. We can protest we fight for justice, but our cry ultimately is to God himself. We take it to the Lord in prayer, as we sang earlier. God, upon your character and upon your promises, do what is right here. We're asking you to act. We're asking you to right the scales. We're trusting in you to make things right. We set our hope confidently on these dual realities that God is good and he does good and he will make all things right. We look back to the cross of Christ where God dealt with our sins once and for all, and we look forward to the return of Christ, where he's going to come and make all things new. And we set our hope there. We place our hope in a sovereign king who is in control, who rules over all, who is redeeming and making good out of the worst evils in this world. Ephesians 1.11 says that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Literally everything that is going on in our world right now, everything that is going on in your life personally, everything that is going on in our nation, everything that is going on in our world is under the sovereign hand of God who will ultimately work it all together for the good of those who love him. I will admit to you, church, there is mystery in that. I don't understand it, but I believe it. I believe it. We see it in the scriptures. Think about the story of Joseph. Betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused while serving in Potiphar's home, sent to prison, forgotten by the men whose dreams he interpreted until one day, Pharaoh had a dream that none of his advisors could interpret. And the cupbearer remembered, hey, there's a guy in prison. He's a Hebrew. He can interpret dreams. 
And Joseph was brought into Pharaoh's house and interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, which ultimately led to the preservation of God's people who were facing a famine. And Joseph's brothers end up coming to get grain from Egypt. And finally, Joseph reveals his identity to them. And here is the statement that Joseph declares to his brothers who were scared to death because Joseph is second in command in the kingdom of Egypt at this point and had the authority to have them all killed for what they did to him. And Joseph declares this, as for you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He puts his hope in the sovereign goodness of God. And as we lean into God as a real hope and as a refuge, and as a righteous ruler, I want you to notice what happens last in this psalm. I know we're long today. We'll finish quickly. As David reflects on God as his hope and as his refuge and as his righteous ruler, it actually leads David to a point of rejoicing. It's a strange thing, right, that David is crying out to God at the start of this song and is singing to God at the end of this song. Verse 17, I will thank the Lord. For his righteousness, I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. As David reflects on all that God is for him amidst his suffering, he is moved to spontaneous worship. David is still under attack, by the way. Nothing about his circumstances have changed at this point in time. He's still wanted for treason. His circumstances haven't changed, but his vision of the Lord begins to eclipse his circumstances, and he begins to sing. He begins to rejoice in the Lord. And that's the last truth that we see in this psalm is that truth number four, the Lord is a reward. The Lord is a reward. As David sets his eyes on the Lord and reflects upon the character of God and all of his promises, he says, this God of righteousness, he's my God. He's my God. In your Bible, you should find in verse 17, at least in my translation, that word for Lord is in all caps, which means it's, it's the word for Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the intimate name of God. It was a name known only by the people of God. And David realizes that the God who created him, the God who rules over all, this is his God. He had a relationship with this God of the universe. The God of the universe was on his side. This God was with him and for him. As the Apostle Paul reflected on this same reality in Romans 8, he's led to the same spontaneous worship. Romans 8, 31, Paul exclaims, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, in the context of this passage, Paul's talking about suffering, suffering as a believer. And Paul's conclusion is, amidst all of the sufferings of this life, if God's for us, who can be against us? Paul can't help himself. He bursts into praise because he recognizes that God is for him. Church, in the broken world we find ourselves in, we need to know that the God of the universe is with us. He's our God. He's on our side. And how do we know that? Maybe you're in here this morning, you're going, how do I know that God is for me? The next verse in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his own son in order to save you, in order to make you his own, in order to bring you into covenant relationship with himself. And if he's done that, if he's given his own son for you, if Jesus has come in love to rescue you by laying down his life for you, won't he also take care of the rest? Certainly he's got us. Who can be against us, church? 
And so, in this moment we find ourselves in, in a world of chaos, with disease, and injustice, and brokenness, we find hope in a real God who is our refuge and our ruler and our reward. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we give you praise this day for being a real hope to us. God, you're our refuge and our righteous ruler. And God, if we have eyes to see that you are also our reward. Amidst all of the the brokenness of this life, we can actually have joy because we have you. And so God, teach us when this world gets crazy, when life is unfair, when we're dealt a blow of injustice, teach us to run to you. You are our God. And we can sing even in our confusion because you are on the throne. You're with us and you're for us. And you're coming soon to make all things new. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to emmanuelwithanibirmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.